0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, have you ever been somewhere, local or distant, you're walking down a sidewalk or maybe you're on a tour or maybe you're just vacationing on the beach, It could be anywhere, and you see someone and they remind you of someone else. Have you ever had that happen? Most of you probably have. And if you're with your family, or maybe some friends, you, sometimes you say, "Oh, look at," you call their name. They remind me of, and you mentioned another person's name. So, Julie and I have been finding this happening more and more as we get older. By the way, I think the catalog of faces that you kind of build up it gets larger. And and we see a lot of your long lost relatives that you don't know you have all over this country. We saw some yesterday. We were touring the historic homes at Sherman Hill District yesterday. It was a fun time. And, Went to the tour of the Woodlands at Woodland Cemetery down there off of MLK, and some interesting history of Des Moines. And it was just a lot of fun hanging out together. And it's amazing. I mean, folks we saw that were like, "Man, Rennie, she has a sister. She didn't even know she has. Like, looks just like Rennie." And then Scott, and you know, other people. Like, oh. it's it's amazing how you just keep seeing people that look a lot like other folks you know. Um, this happened in San Antonio as well. We were down there what last January. And we're walking the river walk. And and we have found as we're married longer and get to know each other more deeply, we have the same thought at the same time. I'll look at her and I'll say, that looks like Brad. She goes, I was thinking the same thing. You know, we're laughing. In fact, just this week it happened. Um, My daughter, my oldest daughter, she has three kids. She uh, has been saying for a while, like, man, Dad, Bryce looks a lot like you. I don't know if I saw it until she posted this picture. Here's little Bryce, one of our grandsons. And then she posted this other picture beside it and said, Papa Jr., or something like that. Twin Papa, I forget she said it. And for the first time, I'm like, yeah, he does kind of look like me, doesn't he? And so sometimes you just run into situations where, uh, thank you, I appreciate that. We we'll get off that picture right now. <laughs> sometimes you run into situations where, like, that really reminds me of, of, of someone else. With that as a backdrop, I want you to kind of think about how David, in this week's story, will remind us of Jesus, all right? This is really the whole point of episode three. We're in this series called The Kings and the King. And here it is, season two now, 2 Samuel. And in this episode, I need you to make sure you don't just see the the smaller picture, we'll call it. I want you to see the larger picture. In fact, if you leave today and think, wow, that's pretty awesome about David, then you didn't hear the message. I didn't either present it well, we missed something, because I want you to leave saying, wow, Jesus is awesome. Okay? So take your Bibles and locate 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I want you to see two pictures today. Yes, we'll see one of David, but I want you to see how the Bible really paints this picture in a way that I think highlights and ultimately showcases our real king. So this week's episode, the king that points to the king, this may be one of the chapters in this series that I think best does that job. We see it all through the narratives, but this one here today especially does that. Let me walk you through the chapter in general, kind of show you the large divisions. I'll show you some titles. At a certain point, we'll kind of some things up in a single sentence. I'll take a few questions if you have some, so feel free to text them in. We'll answer what we can. And then I'll give you one last application before we're done today, okay? Here's how the chapter breaks up. If you're taking notes, you'll have this on the app as well. You can open the app and take notes there. Or you have hard copy notes that are available there at the back as well. But here's how the chapter kind of divides itself. I see it as chapters, uh, as verses 1 to 5, really speaking and explaining. You might even say proclaiming how David fulfills God's promise as Israel's national king. It's, a, it's kind of a physical, historical narrative happening here and we see this taking place we'll read those verses in a moment the last 19 or so verses 20 verses they really are explaining how David is doing his job as a king and he fights for God's people we'll cover that I won't read all of those verses I'll just kind of highlight a few things but I want you to have this overview because you you begin to see here how David is actually now fulfilling God's initial prophecy And he's fighting for God's people. And I think already you're beginning to see some typology occur. Can't you see that? Okay, David fights for Israel. He fulfills God's promises for Israel. I think Jesus does that, doesn't he? So we're going to kind of see this unfold. Now, I used a word just now that you ought to understand. I used the word typology. That's kind of a, a $10 word that we use to describe a concept in the Bible. It's called types. It's an official theological concept. And it refers to a situation or story in the Bible that actually points to something greater later. Say those two words with me. Greater, later. So there are several official types in the Bible. I won't go into all those now, but David is one of them. So in much of David's life and much of his reign, his point is not that it's about him. It's about someone what? Greater and later. That's what a type is. We use these words sometimes. We'll say that This first person's a shadow, the greater and later person's the substance. The first person's the the form, the greater and later person's the reality. And so in 2 Samuel 5, we have one of those. We have a story, a narrative that actually shadows, and you could use the word foreshadows someone greater and later, and that's Jesus. And so we're going to see David fulfilling God's promise as king nationally, And how that points to Jesus doing that ultimately. We're going to see David fighting for God's people as king. But we're going to see how it points to Jesus doing that ultimately. So keep that in mind as we work through these verses. Here's verses 1 through 5, explaining the first section of this chapter. And I will have you notice here some specific ways in which we see the writer in a very uh, linguistic fashion pointing to Jesus, I think. The Bible says that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said... Behold, we are your bone and flesh in times past when Saul was king over us. It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. I mean, already your mind is thinking about, Wow, those are words that the Bible is used of Christ. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you're new to Christianity. I'll show you those in a minute, okay? But these are words used of Christ. Here they're used, however, historically of David. It's the Lord's prophecy of David. And so all the, Israel, uh, all the elders of Israel, verse 3 says, came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant. You may be thinking, oh, well, Christ made a covenant with us. So again, your mind is being directed towards thinking of someone greater and later. David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and, and they anointed David king over Israel. Here's now David king over all of Israel. Now, by the way, This is his third anointing. And some see this as somewhat of a shadowy, and I mean that in a good way, kind of a shadowy way to reference the Trinity, perhaps. David was anointed privately with Samuel and his father and his brothers. He was anointed earlier in this book, just over Judah, and now he's anointed for the third time over all of Israel. He was 30 years old when he began to reign. Question, how old was Jesus when he began his ministry? He was 30. Now, at this point, I need to pause and say something to you. When you notice types in the Bible, or what you might even refer to as metaphors or analogies, they can speak to to what is greater and later in a good way, but if you press them too hard, or if you try to make them walk on all fours, we say, then it breaks down. Let me show you how that works here. So you can begin to see, oh, this is speaking about David, and yet there's also some allusions to to the greater king later. But if you press this too hard, look at the next phrase, and he reigned for 40 years. Jesus only really ministered for three years, correct? At least officially after his baptism. So I want to encourage you, as you find types in the Bible, as you notice situations that speak to something greater and later, don't press them so hard that they break down and become illogical. They don't make sense, okay? The point here is that there is some... There is some semblance and some references to to Christ, but it's not in every single word and every single number. At Hebron, verse 5 says, He reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, He reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So this is really the regal proclamation, the official announcement, Hey, David is now king. What do kings do? That's explained in the last part of the chapter, beginning in verse 6 all the way through verse 25. In a word, they protect their people. What you find here is the Jebusites, first of all, occupying Jerusalem, David wanting to move the capital to something more centrally located for both the north and south, and so he's going to retake Jerusalem. The Jebusites thought that was kind of funny. They figured David didn't have much of an army. In fact, they said in these verses, David, we'll put our lame and blind on our wall, and we'll see if you can handle that. Well, it it was kind of a sarcastic, satirical remark. Well, David actually did go, and he captured Jerusalem, Um, and as a result, the word kind of spread that David hated the lame and the blind. Now, let's be clear, David didn't hate the lame and the blind, but it was a sarcastic comment by his enemies to make him think that he he had no army at all, and so it was used, and he even said it at times, like, hey, the lame and the blind, they won't stop me, And and what he's referring to there is not actually lame and blind people. He's talking about God's enemies. And so when you read that in here, what David is saying is, you know what, God will overcome his enemies. And as he's God's appointed leader fighting against God's enemies, uh, God does give him the victory. In fact, you can see in verse 10, the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. He made alliances with different people, such as the king of Tyre. You see this happening. He first fights the Jebusites, then he fights the Philistines. Twice between 17 and 27, he inquires of the Lord about his arch enemies. Remember, the Philistines were the folks who were always dogging David, from his earlier days in the uh, against Goliath, even to now. They were his arch enemy. He inquires of the Lord, and both times the Lord says, "Yes, go up and protect the people as their king." The first time in more of a front-to-front battle, the second time in more uh, like an ambush. But in both cases, it was the Lord who gave them victory. Look at verse 20, would you? David defeats them, and he says, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. He doesn't take the credit. He takes a humble posture as a king, knowing that, watch this church, knowing that the real king who won the battle was the Lord God. He does the same thing in verse 24. Here, the Lord is actually instructing him how to win the battle, and he says that when you do, you'll know the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And so David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gizir. So in in this chapter, we see David fulfilling what God had promised and becoming king for Israel and then fighting for God's people as their king. Does it mean that David was perfect, by the way? Look at an interesting phrase in verse 13. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Do you see that? What we begin to see in this simple verse, and by the way, the verse does not okay that. The verse doesn't say that he should have. It just simply records the fact that he did. We actually begin to see a window into what is one of David's weaknesses. This will be highlighted in a very tragic fashion a few chapters later when he's on his rooftop. And instead of going to battle and fighting as the king, he sees Bathsheba showering. He calls for her, murders her husband, and commits adultery with her. This is just a way for the writer to say, yes, yeah, so David was a great king. He was God's king, and he did a good job, but he had his moments, which I think in turn shows us why we continue to look for an ultimate king, because we know there is no real human king that, that completely satisfies. Are you with me? So in many ways in this narrative, both positive and negative, the writer showing us Yeah, David is God's man. He's fighting for God's people. He's our king, but we're still looking for the perfect one. That's what's happening in this chapter. I think chapter 5, verse 12 is really the key verse of the whole chapter. Can you locate that? Just put your finger on it. Maybe circle it. Lipstick, eyeliner, mascara, pencil, pen, whatever. Just, Just kind of put a mark on it, would you? Look how this verse kind of summarizes the whole chapter. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. See, God brought all of his promises to completion. David, 10, 12, 15 years, running from Saul. From the time he was about 12 or 13, now he's 30. Now he's 30, what, 3, 37-ish. God did complete and fulfill his word. He established him king over Israel. But watch what it says next. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God's purpose was that he would fight for Israel and protect them and provide for them. And if you want to kind of see this metaphor play out, this is what Jesus does for us. God has chosen and has determined that Christ would come as our ultimate Messiah. And that he would do this for the sake of his people. So even in the key verse of the chapter, we see allusions and and pointers. Not to David only, but to someone greater and later. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to take a moment, though, and show you three titles that I think give even more credence to this, this picture that points to a picture. They're the three titles in the first five verses, and they're actually located more specifically in verses two and three. In fact, can you say them with me? You see them on the screen, don't you? They're the titles of Shepherd, Prince, and King. Say them with me. Shepherd, Prince, and King. Good. Let's talk about those because they not only speak of David, they are uh, actual literary ways that point to the, to the ultimate shepherd, prince, and king. In fact, you know, this is the first time in the Bible that a national leader or a governor of a nation is called a shepherd. First time, it's with David. Let's talk about what I think is the weightiest of these titles here in verse 2. David is, is called a shepherd, and it's actually, it's, it's a verb. He says he will shepherd his people, Israel. It means to to pasture the people. It means to provide for them. Uh, You can see why David would later write Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. So here David is called the shepherd, the the one who provides pasture for Israel, but yet he knows in his life the Lord is his shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? He makes me lie down in what? Green pastures, he restores my soul. leads me beside still waters... So David here is called the shepherd. He had a shepherd's mentality. And if I might just could add this, I think this is the major umbrella motif of David's life. Let me explain this to you briefly. I think this is quite intriguing. If you were to say, Todd, how, how is David's life best summarized? I would say it is a shepherd narrative. Watch this. 1 Samuel 16, when David 12 years old, and they can't find the next king, so to speak. Samuel's going to anoint him, and the Lord says, none of these uh, are the king. Samuel says, Well, where is another one of your sons? And what is uh, Eli, as well as David's response? Well, he's out keeping, say it with me, sheep. It's like one of the first recorded statements of David is that I was with the sheep. As you track David's life, you're going to find a lot of statements about sheep. For instance, when he explains his credentials to the king, he says, Yeah, I was a shepherd and I fought off a bear, I fought off a lion because I was taking care of the sheep. He's kind of proven like I was a good shepherd. By the way, in the Bible, uh, false shepherds, false teachers, evil people like that are often called lions and wolves and bears. So there's some analogy and typology in that as well. As we move forward, uh, David here is called a shepherd. One of the marks of a good shepherd is he, he, he considers the sheep most important, Correct. He's not there for himself. He's there for the sheep. David does this except at the moment when Bathsheba enters the picture. He then thinks only of himself. He doesn't think of the sheep in Israel. He should be out fighting. He's not. He should be protecting them. He's not. And so he kills Uriah. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. And when Nathan the prophet comes to, to confront David, what kind of analogy does he use? He uses a shepherd and sheep analogy. It's interesting, isn't it? And he says, David, what would you say about a man who had tons of sheep? But he went to his neighbor who had one little lamb, and he stole that lamb and used it for supper. And David was irate. Now, I won't go into that here, this story, except to say you can look at David's life from the time he was anointed to the moment of his most tragic sin. And throughout that history, there is this consistent shepherd-sheep motif. Motive, uh, motif. There's this umbrella kind of theme that says, wow, David is God's shepherd for Israel. Not the perfect one yet. We see that clearly. But he is God's shepherd for these people. He's the one to provide pasture, to protect them, to to nurture. And so he does that. But he points to the one who's also called the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verses 11, 14. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I like the one in 1 Peter in which Peter says that Jesus is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Isn't that delightful to hear that? I mean, Jesus cares more than you realize and for more than your body. He actually wants to nurture and pasture your soul. So, so Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd that David points to. The word prince here refers, I think, to the military aspects of David's role. You see, I think the word shepherd here speaks to provision, whereas the word prince speaks to protection. Why do I think that? The word prince there can also be translated appointed leader, or it could be translated captain. There's some variance in that. There's some differences. They're not like major theological or anything like that. That just means a designated leader, someone who has been chosen and appointed. And typically it means in a, in a, in a military fashion. You're going to lead the army. You're going you're to be the prince. Who will captain the people. This is what's used here. By the way, Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. He's also called the Captain of our salvation in Hebrews chapter 2. Now watch this. Both of those words, Isaiah 9 and Hebrews 2, they speak of military action, don't they? If you're the Prince of Peace, you must have won a battle somewhere. But you can now kind of call a treaty. You can say, I'm victorious. Does that make sense? He's the Prince of Peace. He won the battle. He's called the captain of our salvation, meaning he leads the army. We look to him. He does the fighting. He's the victorious one. And we share in that uh, victory celebration. So even the words used other places really speak to this idea that the prince here is is a word that would refer to the designated leader for Israel in their military pursuits to protect the people. So the shepherd is provider. The prince is protector. And I think the word king there would be a very good summary word for both. In fact, look at it like this. Shepherd and prince probably speak to the duties of the designation. So several times he's called here, King David made a covenant. Be king over us. David was king over Israel. It's kind of the title used. Here's who he is. He's king. And what does he do? He shepherds and he's our prince. In other words, he provides and protects. And Jesus is exactly called our king in the New Testament. In fact, he's not only called king by his followers and by his father. He's called king by those who necessarily didn't believe in him. First of all, the triumphal entry, John 12, 13. They laid palm branches down to keep the dust away and to keep some of the uh, area kind of clear and clean. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And often in our current culture, we leave out the rest of the verse. But the verse actually goes on and says this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So all of those who were welcoming in Jerusalem that, 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 uh, that day, they knew he was the King of Israel. Now, they changed their minds a week later, didn't they? And they said, crucify him. But they actually had it right, church. He was exactly who they said, King of Israel, the one that David knew was to come. Pilate knew it too in John 18. Pilate said to him, hey, are, and I would love to have seen this play out. Pilate says, are you a king? Have you ever asked yourself why Pilate would ask that? Why would Pilate ask a man who's there on trial if he's a king? It's because he had heard and knew that Jesus talked a lot about a kingdom. So Jesus responds to him, well, my kingdom is none of this world, so yes, I'm a king, but not like you're thinking. He also said to Pilate, you say correctly. So Jesus never tried to back away or shy away from being a king. He just wasn't a king in the way they thought he should be. Colossians 1.13 describes the way he is the king. Here's what Paul said about our king Jesus. that he Watch this, watch this use of words, Colossians 1.13. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. So delivered is a military word. It means to set people free. It means to rescue. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and he transferred us or put us into the kingdom of his dear son. So God has taken us from someone's stronghold, namely Satan and sin, and he's put us into the kingdom of Jesus. So if it's called the kingdom of Jesus, guess who the king is? Say it with me. Jesus. Amen. So guys, Jesus is clearly, throughout Scripture, identified, pictured, and seen as the ultimate shepherd, prince, and king of Israel and of his people. And as such, he fights for us. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I just want you to see in these titles, the Bible lays out, he, Jesus is all of these. So he's shepherd, prince, and king. We see it initially in David for national and a kind of physical Israel in a historical way. But we see it ultimately true in Jesus Christ. Three titles in this chapter with two sections that show us the real picture here to see is not the picture of David church. That's an interesting narrative, but the real picture to see is that Jesus does this for his people ultimately and eternally. Now, I hope you're asking a question right now. Well, Todd, that seems like it's pretty good preaching. That's interesting. I'm kind of intrigued by that, uh, but did you just kind of make that up? Like, what gives you the right just to kind of say that this story points to someone else? Like, is that what preachers do? they just kind of like, take a story make it into a metaphor and say it points to Jesus, like, can you just do that because you want to? What gives you the right to do that? Is this really an accurate way to understand the Bible? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. I know you're all thinking that, right? And you should be, by the way. You should ask, what gives someone the right to say, this is the way to see a passage? This is really the point of this narrative. Like, to me, Todd, it seemed like a story. and You're saying it's about something deeper and greater. Why can you do that? It's a great question. Here's why I can do that. Because I would say to you, this is what David knew himself. So let me add some credibility to what I just told you. In every eye, every ear, I need you to listen wide open here, okay? When Peter preached at Pentecost about Jesus, he referred to David. And David's ability, I think, given by God to know that he was ministering and living and serving for something greater than himself. I think even David knew that this was not about him. Did you know that? Something we should kind of be willing to do to ourselves, right? I mean, David knew it wasn't about his kingship only because here's what Peter said about David. Watch these words. He's speaking about David. Being there for a prophet and knowing, did you catch that word? David knew something. I think it's a supernatural information from God to him knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. You can go to Old Testament and find that written in prophecies, yes. But, but David then accepted that knew it, and he knew that it wasn't just about his kingship. There was one still to come who would be greater and who would be later. The Bible says David knew this. So while he's reigning, he realizes something. It's not just about my kingship. Well, That's a, that's a great trait of a leader, isn't it? The humility to say it's not just about my kingship. Man, we need some politicians like that today, don't we? I won't get off on that tangent. Okay, Lord help me, protect me, keep me focused here. (laughs) So Peter's preaching about Christ, but he says David knew that it was really about Christ. Now watch this next part. Because you may say, well Todd, he's just talking about future kings after him. Really? Really? The verse seems to say he knew that he wasn't the real ultimate king coming. And I would say the verse says that he knew it was about the Messiah that was to come. He didn't know a lot of details, but he trusted the Lord. He believed what was written in those prophecies. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Did you catch that? I would maintain to you that David in some way, and probably very general, but in some way he knew... The Messiah is coming after me. I'm just setting the stage for what the real king will actually do. I can't explain all the details, but if David knew it, then those who wrote the accounts of his kingship, that's that's what would be expressed. That's how God is getting us to see. That's how Peter knew. Yeah, this isn't about David. It's about Christ. Furthermore, listen to this. I think David knew this not only prophetically. I think he knew this presently while he was reigning. Look at this interesting verse in 1 Chronicles. I've I've taught you that the Chronicles are the repetition of the kings and the Samuels. And so as we're teaching through this uh, series, through these three books, we won't spend a lot of time in the Chronicles. It would just be rehashing things that we've already read. So Chronicles repeats a lot of stuff. Here's how it repeats an event that happened. This is 1 Chronicles 21. And by the way, today's events are recorded in 1 Chronicles 11, if you're curious about that. Almost word for word, by the way. But in 1 Chronicles 21, there's this situation where David numbers the people and it's displeasing to God. And I won't go into all the details except to say this. When judgment was about to come upon that situation, look what the Bible says about it. David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And notice the posture of this one called the angel of the Lord. He's between earth and heaven. He's got a a sword drawn on his hand and it's stretched out over what city? That's the one David captured, and that's the central capital. That's the place where the folks say, this is where we live. This is our city. And they lived outside of that as well, but that's kind of what they were known as. We're, we're, we live in Jerusalem. That's our place. The angel is, of the Lord is over that, showing authority, and David's response to this angel of the Lord is quite intriguing. David says to him uh, that he's God. Do you catch that? Look at the first phrase, and David said to God... So we must have here what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. The angel of the Lord here is what we call a theophany. That's the big word for it. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, later he calls him, O oh Lord my God. And he's asking this angel of the Lord, which I would say is Christ, to make sure that he judges correctly. Like, you know, hey, don't blame the people, blame me. In other words, he's posturing himself in humility under this angel of the Lord. What does that say? David knew he wasn't the real king. So so church, catch this very clearly. David knew prophetically it's not about me. It's about one coming after me. And David knew presently and principally, like, wow, I don't run this joint in Jerusalem. Christ does. And so when I bring to you this narrative in 2 Samuel 5 and say, these stories point to someone greater and later. Please hear that. It's not like I'm making up this to, make, to give you some you know, analogy or metaphor that, oh, that's pretty cool. This is the hermeneutic we use, and this is the one that I think even they understood, that the shepherd and prince and king of Israel historically pointed to the ultimate and eternal shepherd and prince and king of all God's people. Does that make sense, guys? That's why we would say this that this passage teaches us that the ultimate hero in every sense isn't David. Did you catch that? The ultimate hero in every way is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the perfect fulfillment of God's promises and the victorious fighter for God's people. What we're looking at today is someone (laughs) greater, perfect (laughs) than David. Is this a good story about David? Yes, But is it really all about David? No, it's really about our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love the fact that that Jesus does this perfectly? He fulfills all of God's promises and fights for God's people perfectly. Amen. And I'm so thankful, so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear that and see that, you're not the first to think of that, neither am I. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. Here's how Paul would word it. And this is one of the verses that I just lean to a lot, and really cling on as we think about Christ fulfilling the prophecies. Here's what Paul would say, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who is him? It's speaking of Christ in that context. And that is why it is through him, speaking of Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So even Paul admits all of God's promises that fulfilled in Jesus. So when the Old Testament points to that, Paul affirms that. So Jesus is the real hero of the story. Amen, church? That's why we gather each week. That's what we're looking at. Does it happen through stories and narratives and illustrations? Yes. But those aren't the real point. The one we're looking at is Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important at this stage that, to answer another question you're asking. Because you are saying, okay, Todd, I, I caught that. I see how this is pointing to Jesus. He's the real hero. We should look at him. I even see how you gave that credence. You didn't make this up. It's a legitimate hermeneutic. It's a legitimate understanding of the Bible. But I've got a question. How does Jesus fulfill? And how does Jesus fight? Like, is there a specific way that he does this? I'm glad you asked that question too. It's a really good question, you know? Let, let me provide an answer for you, okay? Because I think here we get to the real meat of how Jesus does these two things. David did it for his people, right? How does Jesus do it for his people? How does he do it perfectly and eternally? First of all, here's how Jesus fulfills God's promises. He fulfills them through and in his character and conduct. Now, if you've just been listening out of politeness earlier, I appreciate that, but not now. I need you to listen out of importance because what I'm about to share with you is eternally significant for your soul. While we respect and admire David for his role as historical king of Israel and other kings or the prophets, yes, all of them had the essential problem you have. Please listen. And that is, we're not holy. So so we really can't fulfill God's expectations perfectly. Some of you say, well, Todd, I've only got a couple of things in my record. I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I may be the best person in this room. Congrats. Some of you may say, well, Todd, I've got anything but a perfect record, man. My thing is botched up and spotted. I may be the worst person in this room. That's tough life, you're right. But guess what? In God's eyes, you both are equal. Are you listening to me? No distractions. Listen very carefully. In God's eyes, you're both equal. Why? Because you are not holy. You're not perfect. And for God's standards, for God's prophecies and for God's expectations to be met, it takes someone holy. So who's going to meet that standard? Who really, you know, foots that bill? Only one person has been perfect and holy in character and conduct. He didn't sin by nature or by choice. And that wasn't because he was white-knuckling his way through life. It's because he was virgin-born. He was God with us. He was the holy Son of God. That was Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about Christ being the ultimate fulfillment, here's why he does that. Because he was perfect in character and conduct, something no one else has or will ever do. So who do we look to to save us? Not the best guy in the room. And not the worst guy in the room. The Holy One in Heaven. That's who saves us. And a lot of folks are looking at the best guy in the room. You know that, don't you? And most folks think it's themselves. Yeah, Todd, I got a good job. My address is right. I drive the right car. I got an income. And man, they're working themselves to death to create a record that God would respect but God is not a respecter of persons. That's why in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out for us that the Jews had every advantage in the world, but they're still sinners. And the Gentiles were the most pagan folks in the world, but they're still sinners. So what's the conclusion? Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So man, what are we gonna do if there is nobody good enough We are up a creek without a paddle, church. (laughs) Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. But God commends his love to us in that while we all were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you tracking, church? There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be made right with God. It isn't through what you've done or can do, your parents' name, how much money you gave, what club you're in, if you got wet as a baby. None of that counts. Because none of that's holy. The only one who's able to save is the only holy one who's ever lived in both character and conduct, and that's Jesus. So for all who put their trust in Jesus... God considers them holy as well. But you take Jesus out of the way, and he'll see you like every other person, unholy, no matter how much good or bad you've done. Now, that's not politically correct in this society. That's not culturally acceptable. But be it known from this platform, this church stands on the exclusivity of the gospel. Salvation is a narrow way because it's by one person only. His name is Jesus Christ. And what he did on the cross was eternally significant. It atoned, he atoned and covered our sin. And no other way will suffice. So the question then is this wow. Who am I trusting to save me? Am I trusting how good I've been? Or my parents? Or the priest? Or my pastor? Or my job? I'm trusting what my income is, my address, the car, my status, my civic uh, involvement. All of those things will crumble. And I just want to politely but boldly ask you, have you put your faith in the only one who actually fulfills every single one of God's promises and prophecies perfectly? That's Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who can save. If you haven't, but right now your heart's kind of spiritually palpitating... (laughs) Your hands are a little sweaty. You're like, man, I'm nervous. He's talking right to me. He read my mail this week. I would just humbly just urge you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. Turn from trusting anything on your own and believe that Jesus alone saves. It would look something like a prayer sometimes, like, God, would you just save me by your grace? Some folks come to an altar and kneel down. Some folks a out a card. Some folks just open their eyes while they're driving and pray. The, 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 the way and the, and the place is not the point. The posture of the heart matters, amen? And if you've never said to God, I cannot save myself, only your son Jesus can save me because he's the only one who's ever been perfect and holy like you. So God, save me through Jesus. Now, I would say you're not a Christian. But today is the day to become a Christian, a follower of Christ, saved by His grace. Amen? So that's how Jesus fulfills God's promises in His character and conduct. He's holy, and so He satisfies all of God's requirements. How did He fight for God's people? He does that at the cross and at His coming. So if you had to have four words to remember, I'd say this. Character, conduct, cross, and coming are the ways that Jesus fulfills God's promises and fights for us and shows that he's greater and more ultimate than David because Jesus does these perfectly. He fought for us at the cross. That's where he gave his life for the sheep. He beat back sin. He gave his blood and his body to forgive our sins. And so all who trust Christ have their sins forgiven. But yet, though we are saved, now watch this church, keep listening. Your minds are in fifth gear. Don't 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 single me now. Though we are saved at the cross from the penalty and power of sin. In other words, those who believe in Christ and his full satisfaction of sin's payment to God at the cross. Those who believe that are saved and they will not go to hell. They'll not suffer God's wrath and they don't don't have to sin in the present. Though that's true, we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. Did you know that? I mean, how many of you this week rode the boat of struggling with your sin? My hand's up. Is your hand up? If it's not, you're struggling with sin, okay? <laughs> That's the way that works. We do this week. Our lusts, our words, our thoughts. So what is that? You're, you're saved. You're born again. You won't suffer in hell for your sin, and, and God has freed from its power. You don't have to sin. It's this body. It's this, it's this old nature that we're still living with, and it'll still be with us until we die, and it gives you fits. It gives me fits, amen? Paul talked about the lusts of our members. But there's a day coming when even the presence of sin will be defeated by Christ. When he comes, the Bible says, he'll crush Satan under his feet. Hallelujah, church. He'll come on a white horse. He'll have a name tattooed on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the word of God will be going from his mouth like a sword. And he will conquer sin and all of its presence. And we'll live with God in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom of God forever, without even the presence of sin. That's the day I'm looking forward to. So so do you see how Jesus fights for you? He fought so that you would be saved. Amen. Your sin's forgiven. He won that at the cross. He fought so that you would be being saved, not under the power of sin. Amen. But he even fought for you so that you would be saved one day from the very presence of him. Christ has fought for you on the cross to be saved in every way. What a powerful Savior he is. And so all who believe in Christ... They have this fighter for them. He intercedes for you now. He prays for you. He's fought for you. This is why Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, prince, and king. I'm so thankful for Jesus, aren't you? And if you're wondering how he does it, this is how he does it. He's the only holy one who meets all of God's requirements and expectations and prophecies. And in meeting those, he qualifies to die for us. And to come back for us. So if you're looking to anyone else to save you, you're looking to the wrong hero. I urge you, look to Jesus Christ as the only way. Let me take three minutes. No questions today. Man, I told the 830 crowd, you guys have been nice the last few weeks with no questions lately. Thank you. Even though I like questions, if you don't have any, you don't have any. Well, there is one more you should have. I've told you about two questions you should have, right? The first one's about what gives you the right to kind of teach the Bible this way. Is this a legitimate hermeneutic? The second one was like, well, how does Jesus do that? Here's the third question you should be asking. I know you're asking this like, so what, Todd? (laughs) Like, that's pretty interesting theology. I kind of tracked you. I would say, yeah, I guess it's true. But now I'm going to work in a little bit. I'm going home with my wife and three kids, my husband and four kids, or one child, our newborn, I'm going to take my father to my mother, and, and I thought I got real life happening here, man. Like I appreciate this; it's good to see it. But like, put some shoe leather on that, dude. I'm leaving these doors, and I'm going to probably to argue with my wife. I'm going to have to do this with my kid. I got—I'm I'm short on bills. What's happening? I'm really glad you asked that question too. Let me show you how all this—what what it screams to us and what it says to us. Don't settle. Don't settle for underachieving temporary pseudo-saviors. In fact, just to be frank with you, and I'll just say this, it may come off a little irreverent, like like David. This is what the Jews did in the New Testament. They were sure that Abraham and David were their savior. And they argued with the real one, Jesus, in John, consistently like, hey, we're Abraham's seed, back off, Jesus. Like, you think Abraham's gonna save you? They argued about David and Peter said at Pentecost David's in the grave but Jesus is alive. So they would settle for underachieving temporary pseudo-saviors like Abraham and David and we do the same thing. Things like our jobs, our status, our image, our income, our cars, our address, our political party and we think that's going to save us. They're underachieving temporary pseudo-saviors. They're just there's nothing about them that will save our soul. Instead, lock in on the ultimate, eternal, sin-forgiving, soul-satisfying Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And make no mistake, your body, your flesh, it's trying to create its own set of heroes. Mine does all the time. Do you know that? I told you last week, I struggle sometimes with this whole external thing and placing too much insulin on the externals and I stress, well, that's where pride can creep in on me and I got a great family who keeps me in check a lot okay <laughs> they do a good job at that in fact I struggle there my heart wants to create idols that will put their stamp on me hey you're good Todd thumbs up to you we approve as if that's really going to satisfy me but all that does is leave me more hungry for another person's or, or, or uh, organizations like stamp it always leaves you more hungry you're never, you're never good enough in that world are you but because God doesn't look to you to be good enough, because he has looked to Jesus, and because Jesus is perfect, if you're in Jesus, God says, hey man, thumbs up to you, Todd. So why do I try to find all my satisfaction in my own created heroes? Man, let's look to Jesus, amen? Just this week, I had the same experience. I was uh, at a committee meeting down in Nashville for something I'm serving on for about a year or two. And I didn't know who was gonna be there. I, there was about 80 of us total. It's a committee for a national group. And uh, we kind of give advice and some, I wouldn't say oversight, but we give some um, insight to about six seminaries and to some mission boards. And so their presidents and heads would be there. And I didn't think I'd run into them, to be honest with you. I was just a peon guy going there to be a part of the 80-member committee. But I'm on this first day, I'm just there. This is Monday and Tuesday last week. I'm in this buffet line, and, and these, you may not know these names, but those are my circles would. And so I'm there, and Al Mohler comes walking out. Now, Al Moeller's a seminary president. He's forgotten more than I'll ever even know. I'll just be honest with you. I probably He's forgotten more than I'll, in one day than I've, in my whole life I'll know. He's a, he's a very intelligent man, a good writer, a good spokesman for Christianity. And so I turn around, and I was like, whoa. And I just begin to feel nervous. Like, man, Al Mohler and me, like, I probably ought to bow or something, right? I mean, (laughs) I just had these weird thoughts. It's that old thing of creating idols, you know? And and then, as I turn, I'm kind of looking like, oh, what do I say? I'll probably say something really stupid if I'm not careful. This is not going to go well. And David Platt comes walking out. And he's kind of a real hero in regards to missions. You may not know him, but he's done a great job with IMB. He's a real heart for unreached areas. And he just has a a good reasoning about churches that, uh, you know, how we should be involved. And so suddenly, I'm kind of surrounded by two guys I really admire, And I mean, my heart's going, and it's real fast. And I'm like, you know, am I dressed right? Do I have the, and they're not even worried about that. They're just regular guys, but I'm creating this environment where if I don't get their stamp of approval, I'm probably not a good pastor. So I got out of line. I was like, I I don't think this is a good place for me to be because I'm just creating heroes that really aren't heroes. Are you with me? I go back to the room, and there were other guys there too, and I'm, I'm looking around like, man, I'm in the wrong place, you know? I go back to the room and, I called Julie, and I said, you know, it's amazing. We love to create heroes out of people, don't we? I said, we, 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 we curse the celebrity culture we have, but we create it. And I just said, God, forgive me. I said, I'm wrong when I do that. I had created heroes out of those men. So I went back later. We heard reports from them and other people, and I just treated them like normal. In fact, I met other guys who were pastoring small churches in Louisiana and Michigan They should be heroes too. Are you with me? Because in God's economy, he doesn't look at things the way we do. I know in that moment, man, I I was trying to be satisfied with things that were pseudo-saviors. They weren't going to be all satisfying eternally and ultimate. Only Jesus is. So if you're struggling sometimes in this, man, join my boat. I'll row that too sometimes. That's why we have to Lean our hearts to see that in the Bible, it's not about David. Just like in our life, it's not about Al Mohler or David Platt. Are you with me? And your church is not about Todd Stiles. This is about Jesus Christ. So let's turn our hearts and lock them in on the all satisfying, sin forgiving, eternally ultimate son of God. Amen. Who intercedes for you and stands in for you and fights for you and has forgiven you and satisfied every bit of God's wrath against sin for you? And if you're looking to anyone else today, would you turn from looking at them and look instead at Jesus? Let's pray.